I'd like to invite you to take them and don't turn to the book of Genesis. Don't turn to the book of Genesis. Turn instead to the Gospel of John and chapter 4 as we begin a new series for the summer. A special welcome to you this morning. If this is your first time to Big Woods, because let me tell you, this is a perfect time to be your first time, because we're going to be looking at a subject that really is explaining why we do what we do. Church 101 is what I've called this series. I know Memorial Weekend is the time that we officially kind of kick off summer. And so we're going to spend the summer looking at subjects that we, I think, we get so familiar with doing the same thing over and over and over again that we almost forget why we're doing it. We call it muscle memory. Muscle memory is a good thing. We work hard to get muscle memory, both in athletics and academics. But at some level, if you get too far in, we do things without even consideration as far as why we do them. How come? What is our basis? What is our reasoning? There's multiple subjects and really in no particular order. I began with really what we have already been doing this morning to draw people's attention to corporate worship. A subject that you're like, well, we get it enough. No, no, actually, really, how we examine this subject from the Word of God. It is great to have... Luke and Juliana were just here, and now they're no longer here. Great to have Luke and Juliana home with us. Sorry that, you know, we've already upset them and they're on their way out. No. What a delight as well to hear from Gene. I want to retire like Gene, where he continues to have impact and influence, jumping on a plane to fly south. He speaks a couple languages, a hero of the faith for big ones. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray maybe just a little less volume this morning. And let's spend some time together in prayer. Father, we love you and we just are so grateful for the opportunity that we have already been given to lift up our voices in praise to you. We thank you, Lord, that you're our rescue, our redeemer, the reason that we gather this morning, the focus of our worship. Father, we thank you already for the testimonies that we've heard and seen. We thank you, Lord, for Gene, and we ask, Lord, blessings upon him as he heads to Belize. Pray for Linda and the girls at home. We thank you for Luke and Juliana being here as they prepare for ministry. We pray for Sam and Ellen and their team as they are in South Sudan. We pray, Lord, for Pastor Aaron and Brianna as they head off in a couple weeks to the Middle East. And I just think, Lord, of the church. It's an, an intersection of sorts. People coming and going, be prepared, encouraged and supported and prayed for and sent out. May the, the gospel that is preached and heard here this morning may continue to just expand to every corner and crevice of the entire world. And Father, for each person that is here today, in your providence, you have set this time apart for us. You've ordained it, and we thank you. I pray that we would steward this time well. 
I pray, Lord, that you would be the focus, that you would be heard. The Holy Spirit would use me however you see fit. Please watch over my mind and my mouth. May everything that is said and done be for your glory and your glory alone. We ask this in the amazing and matchless and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. One of the amazing aspects of what we do here as part of God's work in saving his church is that he calls all different kinds of people together. Even represented in this one room. There are young and they're old. If you notice, there's people that kind of like stay a little bit more buttoned up. And then there's the loose and the casual person. And that's fine. There's people who enjoy Bach to Brazilian Samba, and people who listen to Frederick Copen to, to Lecrae, and yet we are all united. We're all kind of drawn together out of a love for Jesus. Now, there are challenges as we gather together as a body to worship, but the question this morning is this, how can our corporate worship contribute to us being a mature, faithful, growing, effective body of believers? I want to begin in in a topical series, in a sense, in the Gospel of John in chapter 4. A familiar text, it's Jesus in dialogue with the woman at the well. I want to direct your attention to verses 23 and 24. We don't have time to read the whole narrative. This woman has come to, to, to get water in the middle of the day. She didn't think that anyone would be there. She dialogues with Jesus. Jesus reveals how much he knows about her, just like how much he knows about our hearts this morning. And he says this in John chapter 4, verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The word of the Lord. We know that when Jesus met this Samaritan woman at the well, in a sense, she invited him into a debate on the subject of worship. Should God's people worship exclusively in Jerusalem? Or she's referring to what? The mountains, the twin towers of Gerizim and Eba in Samaria. Jesus responds by saying what? He's teaching her what real worship is. This is our focus. What God is seeking, it says what? Is that the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In spirit means what? It's, it's everywhere. It's not limited to a particular location, a physical location, a particular mountain, a particular temple. In truth, he's responding to what? There's one true God through his Son. There's one true vine. True bread, true shepherd, true temple, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so rather than divide God's people, worship actually is something that unites God's people together as we all worship in spirit and in truth. So what is our goal this morning? We cannot, it is impossible. We cannot cover everything about this particular subject of worship, but we can understand that it is one of the most sweetest gifts that God has given to us. In many ways, God glorifying worship is, is a valuable fruit 
that displays the unity at work, the Holy Spirit, in each one of our lives. When what? When we worship properly. When our lives and our hearts and our minds are transfixed with the beauty of Christ. And what happens is that overflows for something all of us. To learn how to love Christ and to value Christ more. Three questions I want to give to you. The first one is this. What exactly is worship? If we were to work with a definition, what, what is worship? For years, I've personally had a definition of worship. It is one's, what, sincere response to God's goodness and grace. And you've probably heard me use that over and over and over again. And I think that's a good definition, but I don't think it's a great definition. I'm continuing to learn and grow. I was reading recently David Peterson. Let's use this as a definition of worship. Worship is engaging with God on the terms that he proposes in the way that he alone makes possible. A good, working, simple, clear definition of worship. Well, it certainly is a rich concept in the Bible. There's not one Greek word in the New Testament that corresponds to our word worship. There's lots of different terms. If you look at the New Testament, worship extends beyond what we do just here on Sunday morning. First Corinthians says what? Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. Romans 12 says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It means what? The sacrifices that we offer in the new covenant are not bloody sacrifices like the Old Testament, burnt offerings, but it's actually submission Every part, every ounce of our own lives, every aspect to the glory of God, everything we submit for the praise of God, which includes what? All of life. And there's a lot represented, a lot that's packed into every one of us. Think of this. All of our affections, all of our actions, our obedience all of our relationships, and that includes what? Us together are times of praising God and edifying God. We know that worship is to be God-centered. Its proper response is on the magnificence and the splendor and the majesty of God's character. He alone is delightfully worthy of our praise. Worship is to be Christ-centered, on no one else. Revelation chapter 5, it says what? Who is worthy? There's only one. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb, is worthy to open the scroll. God the Father, God the Son, and we know that worship, what? Is to be spirit-empowered. Before Paul ever teaches what about our singing together, he says to be filled with the Spirit. Jesus Christ himself says this in John chapter 16. He, the Spirit, will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and declare it to make it known to you. So part of our worship involves what? The entire Trinity at work. So biblical understanding of worship is a proper response to God himself. It encompasses our entire lives, every ounce of us. 
and is a delight to the beauty of God and of Christ. Which means what? It's not only a delight in the experience of worship. Let me say that again. Which means that all of our focus on the Lord, it's not only a delight in the experience of worship. Now, in our, what, 21st century, kind of evangelical, we could call it churchy circles that we oftentimes live and move in, worship too often refers to the emotion that happens, the experience, as we, what, we lift our hands, we close our eyes, and we sing about God. And that is good, and that is wonderful, and I worship like that, but oftentimes we can get more caught up in the experience of the worship set than in what? Than in Him. Than, than, than God Himself, who is the origin of that experience. We need to focus our hearts and our minds on God and on the work of Christ in our worship. If worship has lost its passion, but yet there's no genuine thought to it, we're not thinking about God, then it's not really true worship. And on the what? And on the, the converse, if, if worship is only just, what? It's only intellectual. It's only just thinking, but there's no emotion. It doesn't stir our affections toward God. Then it too is void, is false. So we know in a sense, what is worship? Now, what is this idea of corporate worship? Another definition. Corporate worship is the time when we gather as a congregation publicly for the purpose of praising and glorifying God according to his instructions. We make effort to leave the confines we've never lived in a more isolated society more than today. So we leave the comforts, we leave the confines of our homes to make intentional effort to what? To be together. Now, now if you think about it, what I said about earlier, you might think that the church gathering for a picnic, which is always fun, or for a barbecue is always good, then we would say, well, then that constitutes corporate worship. After all, we're, whatever we do, we eat or we, we do it for the glory of God. We're doing it together as a congregation. I would say, yeah, but there clearly is more to corporate worship than that. Thankfully, God's word has given clear instruction in Scripture. Particularly, we see it in the New Testament of what happens when a congregation like this gathers publicly for the purpose of worshiping God. There is commands for us to follow. It's what? Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says that we are to pray together. Remember somebody visiting our church and it was the first time and I greeted them afterwards and, and, and the first thing was, you guys like, you, you pray a lot here. Good. It was new for them. That's okay. But that's what we're commanded to do. Not only are we commanded to pray together, but we are committed to what? Read scripture 
publicly together. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 15 and 16. So it's not like, well, what do we, what do we want to weave into our, our, our day today at church? No, this is what we are expected to do. We gather what? For the listening and the preaching of the word of God. This moment here, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 13. The primary means of ordinary grace. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What else do we do? We gather together to what? Baptize believers. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. We share the Lord's Supper together regularly. Acts chapter 2, 42 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We gather to encourage one another. Particularly encourage one another. We're going to pause on this for a moment. In song. In singing together can be a very uplifting and encouraging time. Ephesians chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15. We gather what? To give of our finances. We steward our time tithe and our talent one of the reasons that we get together with our grandchildren this past week what a a delight like rattlesnakes and everything out west it is like a wild wild place and the kids had little jobs of picking up all the pine cones and they get paid and so we were talking about now he's got five dollars how much of that belongs to the lord I had to get some pen and paper out for my math skills on that one, but thankfully my grandson corrected pop-up. 10% of it. He, he took off his little bit, and the rest was his. We gather for that. I love how it's actually summarized in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 26. What? Summarizes everything that we do. We do it for the strengthening the edifying, the building up of one another. So the Bible makes it very clear how we should, but the Bible also makes it very clear how we should not worship, particularly when we worship him together in public. There's an example of what not to do. Back in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, we know that the second commandment, God prohibits worship through images. Making it clear that what? God regulates the principle of our worship. He's the one who establishes everything. It's his authority, not ours. It's not our call. When the people, what, built a golden calf, which probably many suggested intended to be a representation of God himself. It's what, it was a what not to do. And we, we know the fury of the story when Moses came down and they were dancing around the golden calf. Not only did they destroy it and, and crush it into dust, but they, what, put it in the water and make them drink it. They, they crossed the line of what we are not to do. Later, Jesus rejected the worship of the Pharisees, quoting from Isaiah in Mark chapter 7. They worship me in vain because their teachings are but rules taught by men. They're they're missing the spirit of worship. It was all about do this, the rule, the letter of the law. 
God is, is rightfully jealous for his own glory. And he reveals to us in scripture the ways that we are to approach him as we gather publicly. He does this, why? So that our worship won't be confused with other religions. You know, it looks different here than other places. That our worship will not be confused with other gods. He does it so that we will be blessed. God knows, God knows what is best for us. Think about when we consider corporate worship, we understand the Bible doesn't leave room for us to just be free to improvise, but rather he regulates the elements of worship and the, the content of our worship. Now we could also say, wait a minute, but there has been freedom and we don't entirely worship in this particular context the way that people would have a hundred years ago even. We know that we have seen, we could use the term in, in evolution of sense. It used to be the, the pipe organ. And it used to be what? That you would sit in these really, really firm, uh, strict, hard, hard back pews. And you had to do it like that. Well, wait a minute. God doesn't regulate that. He gives freedom. The difference from instruments over time so that we know ultimately that we worship in spirit and in truth. And it should happen in a way that when an outsider, a visitor comes, that they, that they, that they experience what God's people as they are encountering God himself. That we are offering to them a testimony. This is what it looks like. This is how we proclaim the goodness of God to a watching world. We oftentimes ask as elders, as leaders, as pastors, are we, are we doing that? Are we keeping the focus on God so that at any moment, anyone can come in here and hear, man, they are serious in the way that they have a high view of God, a high view of Scripture. Corporate worship is gathering publicly as a church to engage God according to his instructions. Rather than looking at depth today, a couple of these key things are what? Expositional preaching. I believe that what it is a key part of how God reveals himself to us through the preaching of his word. We're going to spend time on that. That's going to be one of our weeks. On singing specifically and how that helps us focus our thoughts and efforts and attention on Third question here, how is corporate worship a means for togetherness? How do we maintain unity in corporate worship despite the diversity that exists? Every one of us would probably listen to different styles of music at different volumes. Some like it loud, some like it soft. I'm like the light's bright. I'm like the. How, how do we then bring all of those things together when there's personal preferences? Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 2. He says that the church is what? To be like minded, having the same love, being of one spirit and one purpose. And I think that when this is done well, it gives the church a very real, a very effective 
and a very powerful means of witness in its own diversity. Think of it. The very fact that different sinners from different backgrounds all choose to come together to one place at one time because why? Because the power of God is at work in our life. Different journeys, different stages of walks, levels of maturity, that's okay. We all reveal the power of God. So how do we approach corporate worship with all the preferences and the likes and the dislikes in regards to what? Music and style. If you were to continue reading in Philippians chapter 2, Paul's already all over it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. I have to constantly, daily, daily be reminded, don't do anything out of my own selfish ambition or vain conceit. Listen to what Paul says, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Think about this. We are actually called to submit to each other. We should be more concerned about what the other person's style is like rather than our own style. We actually submit what? To Christ by submitting to one another. To love one another. How can I serve one another? Even though what? In church life, we are all different. Visited a neat church last week and listened to a great message that just reminded us what? The biggest problem of the church today is the church. It's true. That we, I, am the biggest obstacle. We are the biggest obstacle that we have to get over to do what God has called us to do. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this point is because today, not necessarily right here at Big Woods, but I think the church, capital C as a whole, we encounter a very strange contradiction. Corporate worship is to be a time when what we are most consciously focusing our attention as a body of believers on the glory of God. And yet so often it's corporate worship that causes kind of the most angst with people. It's not perfect. It's not, and, and that's where there can be complaints. There can be selfishness. And it just should not. Think about it. We should have multiple churches that should be able to worship together and our focus is to be on the Lord, on the Lord alone. We should never think of corporate worship as something that just mainly involves me and Jesus. That's it. Sorry. Not, not in our corporate worship. It's just you and Jesus with what? A hundred or five hundred voices that are just serenading. No, it's not about that. It's not just you and Jesus. We need to think of corporate worship as something that we do together as a family. In love for each other and love for God. Now, how do we learn to think? Like that's, that's new. How do we learn to think that way? Years ago, and I probably was a little bit more brash in my earlier years of ministry. At our previous church, um, it was primarily a traditional church, kind of a white frame 
in New England. And, and, and it was primarily an older congregation that over a period of time, the, the preaching of the word of God and sincerity, the church began to grow. And what happened is that there were younger people that were joining older people in worship. And it was very obvious that younger people kind of enjoyed and had preferences to a different style of worship music. The older people were used to kind of the hymn book and the pipe organ with, with um, the dear pipe organ, I forget her name, just a sweet gem of a woman, faithfully for decades. Hymn book and pipe organ. And the younger ones wanted the, the guitar and, and the drum set. And so we tried at some level, we're going to try to blend the two together. And I will honestly say to the testimony of the faithfulness to that church, there was not in all out what we would call a worship war. But... I do remember that there was the whisperings of a worship war. Like it wasn't full-blown yet, but we were heading there. And the old people wanted to take more of this, and the young people wanted to take more of this. And, and I remember hearing both sides, and I was praying, Lord, what do I do? And it's like, I need wisdom on this. I can't sing, it doesn't matter to me. Saturday night, I called the worship team. Every person, from the organist to the person on the guitar. And I said, hey, guess what? This is Saturday. I said, guess what? You get a day off tomorrow. And kind of did this unilaterally on my own. And like, really? Like, we're not having church? I said, no, we're going to have church. You just get to sit and take a break and just worship. And like, really? Wow, okay. And, and, and for that one day, one day, I preached on the subject of worship because it was, we were kind of leaning that direction anyway. And there was, by design, not one note of music that was played. Not, not one, one, like, plink of the piano. Not one song. There was no song. And I know that Scripture calls us to gather and sing, but I was like, Lord, Lord, extend grace because we're going to learn a lesson here. And I taught everyone, it doesn't really matter. Okay, what style? And so what we did, literally, instead of singing, we just stood together, and I had scripture, and we just read scripture together. Wonderful. Now you may be seated. And we prayed, and we stood back up, and we read more scripture together. There was not one note of music that was played. Perhaps a little dramatic, a little radical in your earlier days, but I will tell you this. Never once did that church go through that worship war experience. They graciously submitted by reminding God, it's really not about my style. I think that's really where we have to focus. One thing that can help in approaching Sunday morning, not, not with a sense that I have come to, to offer all of my wonderful gifts, but with a sense of really corporate worship reminds us of the desperate need that we have for a holy God. And I know that's a little bit because you always talk about offering. Yes, we do offer back to God, but it's not like I'm here and if I'm not here, then no. It's more about a desperate need. Today when I come, how can I receive? John Piper said it well. The basic attitude of worship on Sunday morning is not to come with your hands full to give to God, but with your hands empty to receive from God. And what you receive in worship 
is God, in God is not entertainment. You ought to come hungry for God. God is mightily honored when people know that they will die of hunger and thirst unless they have him. Think about that. We come, we come to church starving to death. Like, you know how you, you work all day and you're looking forward to that cold glass of water? It's that type of, oh, I desperately need him. Very quickly, in closing, corporate worship displays our God-glorifying unity. Corporate worship is an opportunity to display the unity that we have in Christ. And it's wonderful that we can sit down in our own quiet time over a cup of coffee in the morning. And we kind of bask in. But actually, there's something special that takes place. And you've noticed that if you've been here for more than one week. Something special, something unique happens when we stand up out of respect. That's why we do it. If you can, stand And something special happens when we lift up our voices praising God together. Peter reminds us that's that's one of the reasons that God brought both Jews and Gentiles. Okay, they didn't hang together. They didn't ride the same posse. And yet Peter writes, what? You are a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. And into his wonderful light. It doesn't really matter. We all have a story. We all have a background. We all have a path. Yes, God's providence has has designed that. But together, that's why Jesus, what? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you have something against a brother, don't even bother with your gifts. Leave your gifts. Go to your brother. Go to your sister and make it right. It's an opportunity for us to be together. Secondly, corporate worship offers an opportunity to help. And this is what is so needed today. This is what people are missing out on when they refuse to gather in corporate worship. Great advantages we have as we worship together is we help each other grasp. Help me get it. Hold on tight to the beauty and the glory of our God. Help each other express our response in joyful praise and thanksgiving. Corporate worship provides a platform that we can serve one another. We bring musicians, what, to the front just because they like to stand in the front? No, because they have hearts. They've been called and gifted. We bring men to the pulpit that have studied the word to preach and to teach. What a delight. Pastor Robbie, on Mother's Day, I just, just wasn't up for it. I just didn't have it in me. My mom just passed away, and it was hard. I'm like, Robbie, can you preach on Mother's Day? He's like, Mother's Day? How do, like, how do I do that? That's a tough one. Just stick to the word. And God blessed. Dan, you're going to close out Genesis chapter 5 because we're going to start a new series. What's the text? It's this. What do you want me to do with that? And together we study and work and proclaim. Why? Because we are to, as the author of Hebrews says, consider how we may spur one another on to good works. You realize that you're doing that in your voices when you sing? A couple real quick things. I I made a list. Read the sermon text before you get to church. It's always given to you. Haley gives it to you on Thursday. The need to know. Read the text beforehand to prepare your mind. Why? 
then you can come and you can begin to talk about it already before worship has even started. Come and, and sing loud and sing joyfully. Come faithfully, regularly, especially as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We can discuss the sermon afterwards. That's what we do with our Q&A. Like, what did you mean by that? Even today, the little QR code, shoot that, bring a question, we'll sit in the NPR, and we'll talk all about this very subject. Why? Because we learn that way. Express joy to each other during the service. Welcome those, particularly those who are unfamiliar. They're new here. This is like totally new for them. And you like grab your paper and head to your seat. Wait a minute. That's not you being part of the body. I know you've had a tough week. There's something that God has given to us called a smile. That means so much. Express joy in the fact that we get to be here. Do you realize how many millions, literally millions, of our brothers and sisters in Christ that do not have this privilege? They, they don't get to do what we do. Be attentive. I, I will say, and I give you a, a grade here, we have a, a, a body of believers who are good listeners. I know there's a lot of educators amongst us. But, but you've learned well how to listen and you're actually what leaving an example for others. Take notes. That's why we give you the little scribble pages for you to work on. Foster a culture of prayerfulness. Yes, we should be a church that says, you know what, when you guys gather, you pray a lot. That's right, because we need help in this. Teach our children how to sit in church. This is not sitting them in front of a movie. This is not playtime. And we know that age-appropriate, some of them, we have to send them to wherever they go out those big doors and down the long hallway. But we teach them. I remember even as a little one, my, my, we could not make a sound. We don't want to necessarily be like that, but we're teaching children the respect Corporate worship is also edifying. An opportunity for us to build one another up. You realize that, that God isn't the only one that we address in times of corporate worship. It says that we are to speak to one another. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart. So when we sing together, when we read scripture together, when we pray together, we're actually keeping other people in mind. We're reminding them about great truths. The greatest truth. We've been created in the image of a sovereign God who loved us enough in spite of our sinfulness to offer his own son. And we sing about those things. We sang about even this morning that Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose that victorious day. That there's hope for us. That there's help for us. And as we sing that, we remind one another. So meditate. Think about the words. You're not just running your mouth on. The meaning of the words. Consider even how your body language can encourage other people or distract other people and guard from being a distraction. Smile. Sing loud. But I don't really know how to sing Listen and learn from others. I'm sure my dear wife has been so faithful to listening to me sing loud and off-key for years. 
And she actually said the other day, I kind of like it. <laughs> Encouraging one another. Second Peter says, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them. And you're firmly established in the truth that you now have. Messages like this, why we do what we do, are good reminders. And then finally, what does corporate worship do? It gives us a little taste of heaven. I was touched last week with, a couple weeks ago with Philip and, and Bea here. 800 people with the Kekshuani language. 800 people. And you realize that in heaven, when we all stand before the throne, from every tribe and every tongue, someone will be singing in that language. And we will be singing together. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 gives us a wonderful description of everyone gathered together, thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names were written in heaven. Our names are there. You've come to God. God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men, made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. This is a practice session of what all the glory of heaven will look like as we stand together in corporate worship. I, I trust that it's just a little reminder of what we do, why we do. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we are amazed at you. We love you. We just pray, Lord, that as we continue on in our worship, even in closing, as we have opportunity to, to dialogue about this subject, that you would continue to remain supreme and sovereign over all, that you would be the focus of our lives and our hearts and our attention, that we would lift up our voices, not with our own hearts and minds as concern, but first and foremost, yours and then others. We love you. We thank you for the graces you have shown to us, your mercies that are new today. In your name we pray. Amen.